and welcome to Future Cities, a new podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills. Herbert Smith Freehills is a global law firm, and I am Nicholas Carney, a partner in our Sydney infrastructure team. My co-host is Matthew White, also a partner and the head of our London planning practice. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Nick, and hello, listeners. Matthew and I are leading the firm's Future Cities initiative in which we consider the key issues facing the future planning and development of our cities globally. Check out what we have done so far at www.herbertsmithfreehills.com slash future cities. Matthew, do you want to introduce the episode and kick things off? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, So there's been a lot of speculation in the media about the demise of cities as a result of coronavirus. So the aim of this episode is to bring you some real life perspectives on how two of our global cities, London and Sydney, are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm delighted to welcome two guests to join our discussion whose current work faces these issues directly, Amy Brown and Alex Williams. Uh, Amy and Alex, let's kick off from hearing from each of you on the roles you currently hold. Um, Amy, do you want to go first? I would love to. Thank you so much, Matthew, and thanks again, Nick, for having me. Uh, So, Amy Brown, I'm a Deputy Secretary of Strategy and Delivery at uh, the Premier's Department uh, here in New South Wales. That means that I advise her on anything commercial, economic or social in nature, uh, which, as you can imagine, is really most issues, uh, and also run projects that are particularly important to her or that won't have the best outcomes if they're run by a single part of government. Uh, just to be clear, being central government, we don't drive tra- trains or teach kids or save lives or renew driver's licences, but one of our biggest roles is to actually connect the various parts of government needed <coughs> to solve a problem. Um, and as I said, undertake complex economic analysis when required to inform decision making and also um, have conversations with the private sector in particular as to how we can partner together for better outcomes for our citizens. Okay, thanks very much. And Alex? Uh, Well, thank you for inviting me today. Uh, My role is I'm uh, Director of City Planning at Transport for London. So I run the uh, planning department for uh, TfL and TfL is the kind of integrated transport authority for the city of London. Uh, so it runs the tube network, the bus network, manages the road network, or, or a proportion of it, taxis, private hire, congestion charging, ULEs. So the whole uh, range of transport functions. We uh, we report to the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, and he is the uh, he, he's got a series of functions in terms of the planning function. Uh, running with the Met Police, transport, uh, and a lot on housing as well. So my job is to uh, help shape the city. Uh, that's what city planning is all about. Uh, and historically, it's been all about managing growth and how we accommodate that. Uh, but clearly, uh, we need to reflect uh, on what the pandemic means for the future of the city. So we are certainly looking at that at the moment. Thanks, Alex and, and Amy. So what what have <coughs> been the main impacts on each of your works as a result of COVID-19? Amy, did you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So um, here in New South Wales, like most Australian states, uh, we're not that restricted in terms of where we can go or what we can do and how or how we can do our business. There obviously are some restrictions in terms of gathering and and certain activities, but um, I think the kind of how we do our work 
we've got some remote working, but that hasn't changed too much. But I think our focus has changed a little bit because Australia's now entered its first recession after 30 years of economic growth, and we didn't expect to be here, right? So there are a couple of things there. One is um, the fact that I'm focusing a lot more now on economic repair and some of the um, trying to mitigate some of the negative impacts that will occur as a result of the COVID recession and the high rates of unemployment. But then also we don't want to just repair our economy. We want to rebuild it and rebuild it to be more resilient, both in terms of our economy, but also our communities and our society. So um, in terms of the economic repair stuff, look, here in New South Wales and Australia, we're very reliant on tourism and tertiary education. And so both of those sectors are facing significant damage, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. Um, and also other sectors such as arts and recreation, media, accommodation and food services. So um, that employs about 18% of the working population and a lot of young people with 45% of jobs being lost by young people during COVID. Now, the main piece of work my team's done is what are the likely negative impacts in a social indicator sense? So that includes the impact on mental health, right into self-harm and suicide, crime, drug and alcohol use amongst young people, but also on a geographical specific level, because remember in New South Wales, some areas have been triply impacted um, by drought, the black summer bushfires and COVID, which are three once in a century events. Um, so that's the kind of on the economic repair. And just to call out as well, like I said, we want to rebuild to be even better than we were before. So a lot of that is around partnering with the private sector to say, where are the opportunities? Accelerating the technology sector. What sector should we be retraining our workers to go into? How do we capitalise on Brand Australia to attract global companies to locate here and foreign investment and where we might have a competitive advantage? And then finally, there's been a lot of additional uh, digitisation as a result of COVID. That's accelerated, which is great, you know, 700% increase in telehealth alone and 80% year-on-year uh, -year increase in the first eight weeks of the pandemic alone on online retail, how do we embed those consumer behaviours to create, um, you know, make it better in terms of government services, but also more broadly? Thanks, Amy. Sounds like you've been very busy lately. Yeah. Um, and Alex, how's COVID uh, impacted on your work? Well, it's had a massive effect, really. I mean, it's just worth coming, going through a few numbers, really. London's a city of 9 million people, uh, just under 9 million people. And normally on an average day, you get around 27 million trips by all modes uh, across the city. Uh, and at the height of the pandemic in late March, that fell by half. So a massive reduction in movement. Uh, and what we've seen is uh, a, a slight uh, uh, or gradual increase in movement as, as, as we've uh, as we've kind of gone into phases of recovery. So we're up around 20 million trips a day at the moment. But the, one of the, the concerns we've got is uh, public transport is very suppressed. Uh, yeah, ridership on the tube went down to around 5% of normal uh, and it's now up to around 33% of normal. Uh, uh, whereas on a car uh, basis, it's very high. It's around 95% of normal really. So that's one of the things we're very, very worried about in terms of what we're planning for the future, is this just a kind of car-led recovery? Does, does London become a very different city? Because it's, it's grown on the back of brilliant public transport that gets people to the heart of a centre, uh, and you get all of those kind of agglomeration benefits with that. Uh, and what you're seeing is uh, a move away from that. Uh, and I think that's a big issue for this city about how it develops in the future. What does it mean for the agglomeration of the centre of the city, what does it mean for the central activity zone? 
which is very quiet. Uh, and what's quite interesting is the is yeah we're around about a third of normal ridership on the tube. That's dominated by blue collar. It's blue blue collar workers who don't have a choice about working from home. Uh, whereas the white collar workforce, uh, boy, are they working from home? Everyone's working at home. You know, I go into the office you know a couple of days a week, and I'm you know a floor that would hold around five hundred people has got you know five people. You know, it's kind of yeah. people are. Wow. work from home in massive levels and I think that we one of the things we have to think about for the future is that will be sustained uh, to a degree and uh, not in the kind of uh, kind of 95% level it is now but I think we we need to plan and manage our cities in a different way uh, in the context of more people working from home yeah that's fascinating Alex yeah Alex it is very interesting and I'm interested to know the extent to which you, and then I'll come to Amy, view this as a as a, a temporary impact during the pandemic, um, and we will return to what looks more like normality that we all knew, or whether you see some permanent changes coming out of this, and how that's influencing your planning of city uh, projects for the future. Well, uh, it's a it's it's a Really good question. And uh, with previous shocks to the city, like uh, 7-7 bombings, uh, there was a, you know, a, a, a huge avoidance of coming into the city for a short space of time. But then within a month or two, you were back to normal. There was no, there was no real genuine kind of long-term shock. You know, the, the scale of the change we're looking at and the duration of the change we're looking at with this pandemic we we think it's absolutely certain that it's going to be a long-term and, and potentially permanent change. Uh, and and I think it's worth thinking back to the last big economic shock from the world in 2008, you know, global recession. Uh, and, you know, that probably took around circa 10 years. You know, uh, and I'll tell you what Amy's point about, you know, the young were adversely affected most from that, uh, and they probably will be this time uh, as well. The employment opportunities of the young are... Are, are different and, and much more challenging, I think, really now. So I think we will be seeing uh, a long-term, potentially permanent change. And, and the, one, the one example I'd quote is, uh, the, you know, historically we've had this kind of five-day-a-week commute into the office. Now, uh, in the last 10 years or so, you've seen a, a, sh- a reduction in flows on a Friday, maybe a slight reduction on a Thursday as well. So you've, you've had that shifting away from the five-day-a-week commute to, to blend of working at home and uh, uh, and working in the office. And it feels to me as though that's going to accelerate. Uh, mm. And it's about accelerating pre-existing trends. Other trends, you know, what does it mean for the high street and retail? You can see that that, that will accelerate that demise in some ways, that shift to dot-com. Uh, and, and I think... Yeah, that's what we have to plan for and think through, really. What does it mean for And I think it's most evident in the centre of the cities. You know, mm-hmm. if I go into central London today, it's really quiet. Mm-hmm. Ironically, if I go there at the weekend, it's actually busier, you know, because of the people wanting to go in a shop and those leisure activities are some of them, but they're there, really. But I just think there will be permanent change, but we have to kind of plan for and think through, and it's going to take a long time to kind of get back to anywhere where we were pre-pandemic. Yeah. Adani, you talked about opportunities to improve coming out of this. Do you, do you see a similar picture to Alex in New South Wales? 
Um, good question. It's a bit of a mix, actually. I think the best way for me to um, answer this is uh, a lot of listeners probably don't know uh, that the way that we've planned for Greater Sydney, it's actually uh, a city. It's actually three cities is how we think of it, okay? So um, we've got our first city or what we call our Eastern Harbour City. That's what you all probably think of traditionally as CBD. You know, that's you know, think of um, the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and Wynyard and right Central and all of that. So that's that's our CBD. And because the CBD um, has a particular kind of worker base, particularly the knowledge economy, um, there was almost you know fifty percent fewer people working in the CBD during COVID. Uh, now there's actually been some good things that have happened because people have spent more time in their local communities, and that community localization has actually been a benefit. So we'll hold on to that thought, but. Like Alex said when he was describing London, Sydney CBD has been a bit of a ghost town. Um, and, you know, it's also heavily reliant on tourism and arts and culture and international students. So I think what we have to do with the CBD, because we won't kind of go back to the way things were, um, certainly not immediately and maybe not ever, is reimagine what the CBD is and, and use it as an opportunity. So more public and outdoor space, more nighttime economy, which is something that Sydney has been, you know, not great at over the last 10 years, um, outdoor dining, arts and culture, and also Matthew, you'll love this, new forms of housing such as build to rent. What can we actually do in a housing sense that, that we haven't been able to previously? And then we want to focus on a real tech and innovation precinct up near Central Station, so starting to partner with, with um, industries there. Just to mention the two other cities because they have been impacted differently. Um, there's one called the Central, the next one's the Central River City that's around Parramatta and that'll be home of our uh, Westmead Health and Innovation District, which Nick is actually partnering with us on. And that actually houses a lot of industries that supply products to the health sector. So what an opportunity. Uh, so that's actually, this city is a very, very strategic focus for government uh, in, and we're actually um, in negotiations with preeminent tertiary education providers. How do we kind of really make the most of the, the new big hospital that's located there um, in order to really, um, and then connectivity with freight lines and that type of thing. So and more passenger transport, that city could actually do very well out of COVID because the sectors that will be more opportunised will be there. And then the last one is Western Sydney Airport or, or kind of greater Western Sydney. Uh, interestingly, those the people who live there um, tend to be kind of in the service sectors. And so they haven't been able to work from home. They still had to commute and, and go and, and be on the front line, et cetera. But our bigger issue there actually re relates to what we call the digital divide because it just so happens that in the southwest of Sydney, um, they have a lot less access to home-based internet. So, for example, only 67% of school students in the lowest socioeconomic groups um, have access to the internet at all. And so the Western Parkland City is almost isolated sometimes in a digital sense and we need to be very deliberate about that and then you know make the most of the opportunity that comes with the western sydney airport and what are the industries that we can start attracting on the basis that we're going to have an airport there so it's a bit of a long-winded question but i just think sydney's it's a bit of a greater sydney's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle made up of a lot of parts and those parts look very different as a result of all of this thanks amy that that's a great response um question again for both of you but and you've sort of touched on this but what what do you see as being the the positive opportunities or the things that we need to hold on to coming out of the pa pandemic and and how are you planning to make the most of them alex do you want to have have a go i think the the the, the positives that strike me are uh uh 
on, on some of the environmental agenda. There's, there's a risk there as well as a positive there. The positive is uh, air is cleaner, uh, our carbon footprint is smaller, uh, and that's that's down to you know less movement, less movement principally by cars, uh, uh, but but also to a degree public transport as well. Uh, and I just think that's one of the benefits really, and one of the things that uh, government is looking at is about the decarbonisation agenda, and what the mayor is looking at about what he calls a kind of green new deal. So I do think there is an issue about how we kind of uh, come out of the recovery, and how we make sure we. Uh, uh, try and make sure that those kind of changes uh, are bedded in for the longer term. I think the risk with the on the economy side, though, is you know economically we're going to go into really difficult times. We all are. It's going to be really, really difficult. And I think one of the challenges in that circumstance is that often investment in economic, uh, sorry, environmentally beneficial projects get squeezed out. It's seen as a kind of nice to have. Uh, and I think that's one of our challenges going forward is making sure that the environmental gains we've seen in terms of air quality and in terms of carbon and also people living more active lifestyles, you know, people living and working more locally. Uh, you know, we've seen an increase in cycling in the city uh, as people uh, go around the city in a different way. So I just think there's, there are, have been benefits there, but let's not forget that they are at risk, really. But if you go back for a recovery and you and you don't invest in them in your way out of recovery. That's really interesting, Alex. Uh, and Amy, w w from your perspective, what are the opportunities we should hold on to? Yes, certainly. Um, the, absolutely uh, echo what Alex has already said. Um, I think for me, a lot of it is around uh, people are feeling, I mean, we've do recently done a, a statewide survey, 30% of respondents are feeling more involved in their local communities and their local neighbourhoods since the start of the pandemic. So that's fantastic. Um, and alongside that, there's been a lot, a big increase in active transport and people getting outdoors. So um, I think we saw, we took data from 10 Sydney cycleways and revealed 106% increase in cycling just during April um, and the sales of bikes doubled in the first half of this year from what it was the same time last year and 62% of people say they're walking more. So that's um, very exciting and something that we absolutely want to lock in. And indeed, I think because people were working remotely, they were much more intentional about using um, public and open space. Uh, and so, you know, um, I think, again, the survey, 85% of survey respondents walked, jogged, hiked or ran for recreational exercise in the last 12 months. And 71% said they really appreciate their local parks more and are using. So um, that would be fantastic. Uh, and then how can we use the fact that people are, are working more flexibly, firstly, to access talent we might not have been able to access before? because people will be able to work yep. remotely, particularly for us if they're in, say, a, a regional or rural area of New South Wales or have a disability that make it more difficult to commute. But also we've been wanting to reduce travel demand across the morning and afternoon peaks on our public transport system for a long time. So how do we actually uh, leverage the flexible working stuff to spread the travel demand through the day rather than have our pe peaks and therefore we can you know, help the efficiency of the transport network? Right. So it sounds like there's a lot to do. Uh, you know, the, the the shape and feel of our cities is going to change coming out of this. Um, how are you going to fund all this, Amy? <laughs> oh, <laughs> did you know I used to work for Treasury? So maybe that's why you asked me first. Um, so a few things for us. Um, 
The first is that we are having a very deliberate kind of uh, project being monitored at secretary and cabinet le level on economic reform priorities, right? So these are things that we are um, treating in the same way we do premier's priorities, which we set up at the start of every term of government, where they are dashboarded and driven and held accountable and measurable, you know, targets. Like what percentage of non-admitted healthcare activity will we do virtually? And not face to face, and what you know, what and how we're going to make that happen, and what are the barriers, both in terms of consumer <clears throat> behaviour, but also technology and funding mechanisms, and, and, and so it's kind of so it's definitely something's being driven. I think one thing, the project that I'm the sponsor of is the social outcomes project to say, right, there are going to be some negative impacts of COVID, and what are we going to do about it. Some of it is because we have so much data and we really are analysing it and we're monitoring um, almost in real time uh, what are the Im implications of, you know, acute mental health presentations, for example, um, or calls to the um, Child Protection Helpline or, you know, home, uh, special homelessness services or, you know, go on, crime, et cetera. Um, and so what's that enables us to do? It's not even necessarily about new funding, although that would be ideal, particularly for mental health services. It's also about reorganising reprioritizing and reorientating what we have and especially because I've asked for the data to be disaggregated to a very very localized level sometimes it's about making sure that we're targeted for example for those you know for the far north coast regions or greater west of New South Wales who have been triply negatively impacted because of drought bushfires and COVID or southwest Sydney where that youth unemployment is really coming through and therefore increased drug and alcohol use amongst young people so often it's just doing what you were already doing but being much more targeted about it as the story starts to unfold yeah alex is it a similar picture in london or do you, do you think there's a bigger role for the private sector and developers investors to play in this uh well we're in a very difficult place in terms of funding in london you know our, our, uh, literally our money runs out at the weekend so we're in we're in some pretty uh difficult negotiations with governments uh, on that, we had a kind of funding settlement through till uh, mid-October, and that expires on Saturday. So we're in a live negotiation at the moment on that. The difficulty we have is that we historically, over the last five years, we've become more and more self-reliant on fares. So mm -hmm. in terms of our operating costs, seventy-two percent is through fares. Most other cities around the world, it's around thirty to forty percent, with some uh, element of government subsidy. Uh, and when you've got you know huge reductions in fare box income, you need another source of income to see you through. And at the moment, we've been living on uh, support from government because we we need to run a full service and incur those full operating costs. Uh, yeah. But we're running it at around third or uh, third of normal income. So so you know, we need another funding model. Absolutely, our, our business model is broken, completely broken. Uh, and I think that's what we're negotiating with government at the moment. It's about what is a alternative, uh, sustainable, long-term funding source for the city. Because the the understandable uh, reliance on fares and shifting to more self-reliance on fares is you completely get that when you've got a growing fare box based on a growing city. But when that falls apart, it just shows you that that business model doesn't work really. Mm. So, so we. Yeah, we're in live negotiations with government about how we how we fix it in the short term. But I think going back to the point about this not being a quick fix and a quick return to normal, I think we need a new funding model for 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 metro systems in in, in certainly in London. But I suspect mm. it's similar for cities all over the world. To be perfectly honest, mm. Matthew, can I um, add something? Because you said about private sector. 
uh, yeah. partnering and investing. And our premier, um, she did a, a five-point uh, plan for economic recovery as a result of COVID. And one thing she talks about a lot is a precinct-led recovery because for us, we still have a lot, lot of opportunities to develop these kind of, you know, geographical areas or places where the, agglom the agglomeration benefits are, are there um, and it, they really have the opportunity to create hives of economic activity and jobs and then into the benefits of, you know, amenity and connectivity and um, public space and all that good stuff. And that can only happen with private investment. You know, mm. government's job is to enable there to be strategic, to be set the strategy and say, you know, this is about a tech and innovation precinct at Central. This is about a, you know, health innovation precinct at um, Westmead. And then, but then, and start to have those conversations with the private sector. But until the private sector is willing to say, you know what, we agree this is going to be a great initiative and we are going to put you know for example our global headquarters or an expansion of their business or what happens in whatever in that precinct and then what are we as government meant to be providing to make the private sector want to do that so we're having a lot more constructive conversations with the private sector than we've ever done before um and it's one of those kind of pennies dropped and where we just say we need private investment or else there's no way that we can actually um generate the jobs and economic activity that we're going to need for our economy coming out of this I've got a follow-up, I guess, off both of those questions, and that is how do you plan and deliver major city-shaping projects in an environment like this when the future of the city and and people's movements and, you know, their practices is up in the air? And, and you know, it sort of ties in, Amy, with your point about we want investment, we want we want big projects and big projects will create jobs and developing precincts yeah. will will do this but 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 you're 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 doing so at a, a time when a lot of things are up in the air at the moment yeah my my take on it is that uh, given it's so uncertain and so fluid i just i i don't expect government to make decisions on big infrastructure projects for some time until we are clearer about the trajectory out of this uh, pandemic, you know, post-vaccine and, and when we are getting back to normal. So I think the reality at the, the short term, certainly for big infrastructure projects, is we have to be patient. It's going to take longer. So mm. we were looking at uh, looking at two big projects, Crossroad 2 and Bakerloo Line Extension, to uh, you know, multi-billion pound projects to go to powers. Uh, and we aren't going to powers now. So we will, we will reduce the scale of work in that area uh, and uh, and wait till we're clearer on those investment decisions. And I don't think it's just public sector. I think, you know, we've got uh, pressure for a third runway in Heathrow in in West London. You know, they've got 20% of normal flows. There is no way that they've got the money to invest in that kind of expansion at the moment. So mm. I just think those, whilst you can still prepare for them, you can plan for them, you can work through the detail of them, uh, the business cases aren't there at the moment and the uncertainty means that people aren't going to take the plunge. What's going to be interesting for me, though, I think there's, uh, you know, is there is there going to be some uh, economic stimulus at some stage to say to get the economy going? Are we going to invest in some of these projects? You know, HS2 is going, uh, carrying on uh, from Houston up to Birmingham, but are they going to say actually, uh, you know, a bit like the kind of post-war period. You know, no one in the middle of the war could have predicted what Atlee was going to do for the NHS and all the housing development and things like that. So uh, when we're clearer about the pandemic, I think, and, and if there was a fiscal stimulus, I think, yeah, we, we need to be ready for that. 
But at the moment, I just think we have to be patient. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. Alex. I was just going to jump in and say last week the uh, the Commonwealth government, the uh, the Australian Commonwealth government, handed down its budget, and it had a, a very big uh, it had a very big component for infrastructure spending, um, which they're you know which they're going to increase over the next couple of years, and they're looking yeah. for shovel ready projects. So, Amy, do you have a New South Wales perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, you're right, Nick. I mean, we're talking about we've got a hundred billion dollars uh, infrastructure pipeline over four years, and that includes this additional $3 billion uh, accelerator fund. Um, And so that's, you know, and from an economic stimulus perspective, government wants to pump money into projects and into the economy. But what are the best type of projects? What actually gets, you know, it might not be tunnel boring machine ready, although there are some of those, but also is is it the backlog maintenance of schools? What's going to get kind of, as we say, you know, utes on the school playground quicker and, you know, screwdriver ready type type project. I think one of the things about the uncertainty, though, and this might be being a bit idealistic, but I think it's about government being active and not passive. I don't want to sit back and um, let the city do it to me, if you know what I mean. I would actually be, um, you know, insofar as possible, pulling whatever levers government has and then with the private sector pulling together to say how can we shape the city and what are the, you know, how do we want to, what sectors do we want to get in there and where we have a competitive advantage and work together or, or as we say, change behaviours or lock in certain um, mobility patterns or, or, um, you know, the way that we all live and work and move and play and all of that stuff. I think trying to be as active as possible because I would hate to kind of say, you know, in three years' time, oh, right, that didn't turn out quite how we thought it would. Well, let's let's um, let's be in the game so at least we can see it unfold yeah. in real time. That makes complete sense, and I think I think it's it's important to understand there is there is pent up investment demand. You know, there is money there that people want to invest, and they want to invest in cities because they they are you know good prospects for return. But something you need incentives to remove those uncertainties that exist at the moment. And I don't think those necessarily need to be fiscal. They could be policy or regulatory as well. But you need something yeah. to encourage the money to come in yes so, well, we're uh, doing a lot we're doing a lot with government land as well so you know it yeah. might not so you know we might not we might co-fund something or we might uh have yeah grant certain rights over our land or as you say accelerated planning approval streamlined regulation you know yeah. whatever whatever's required Let's finish up. I've got one last question from me which is um if you had the power to change one thing now uh, to make uh, the well well being in our cities better in future, what what would you do, uh, Alex? Uh, <laughs> uh, Here's your chance, Alex. Here's your chance. Yeah. Uh, I, I, the difficulty we have is is uh, it sounds much more much more rosier in southern hemisphere than it does in the northern hemisphere it's always sunny here in the southern hemisphere uh, part of our problem is the we we we're locked in a political impasse of a of a a mayor and a national government being very difficult political persuasions an election coming up uh, and also a a platform of uh wanting or any fiscal investment to be anywhere but london you know it has to be the rest of the country so there's a big kind of anti London feeling it so so naively I would I would like the kind of politics of the of the the national politics versus regional politics to kind of subside and and actually get some more sensible decisions really because you know investment in cities is great for the cities is great for the national economy uh, so I would if I had one thing it would be to kind of 
dial down the kind of the national politics of it that means that we don't seem to have sensible decisions at the moment and actually uh, try and get some mature discussions about it so maybe that's i don't i'm not sure that's a realistic mm. ask but that's what i like at the moment no but i think you're spot on i think we'd all like that absolutely amy things that's better tricky. with you <laughs> Yeah, well, that. But um, it's funny, Matthew, you mentioned the word well-being and, you know, I'm at an advantage here because I've got a team of behavioural economists who specialise in subjective well-being. So, you know, and they survey, they do population-wide surveys and, you know, one of the more troubling elements of that was that um, people feeling more socially isolated than usual peaked at 71% during COVID. So, you know, we've got to be very intentional around this. Um, but they have started to actually quantify economic benefit of some of the, these well-being components, including, and this is probably my answer, um, access to public open space and in particular green space. You know, Sydney likes to be as green as possible. And um, we are literally starting to track, you know, people who access nearby usable green space twice as likely uh, to report better health than those who don't. You know, we, we're starting to draw these sorts of conclusions. Um, and, again, uh, you know, having... Uh, streets lined with trees along the footpath means that people are more likely to walk. So I think these conversations, although we wanted to have them in city planning and business cases and all of that, and I'm sure we have, the pandemic has almost um, amplified uh, yeah. the need because people really need, in order to connect with loved ones and in order to stay healthy mentally and physically, they need that public open space. And this is a great opportunity for us to really um, make sure that it is front and centre in all of our projects, including, you know, down at Circular Quay, for example, Nick Carney. Um, so all of that. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And, uh, you know, if, if, if one thing to come out of this is that it's taught us what's important in life uh, around open spaces and connecting yeah. with our local communities, that, that's got to be at least a good thing. Um, look, this has been a fantastic podcast and I'd love to keep talking and uh, I'm sure we will talk again soon. Um, we hope uh, everyone listening has enjoyed it. Um, if you're interested in exploring these issues further, please do check out the firm's Future Cities Hub at uh, com slash future cities uh, and stay tuned for our next episode. Uh, and please do feel free to contact Nick or I with any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes. All that remains for me to say is thank you so much to Alex and Amy. It's been fantastic and uh, we look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Take care. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.